Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4 Rowing Around in Rama. Episode 7 Echtra Taig McCain. The Adventures of Taig, Son of Cian. The Island of Sheep. They were two weeks away from land now, 14 days and 14 nights buffeted on the undulating, heaving, breathing waves. The vessel that had appeared so strong and stalwart on the good earth now began to seem no more than a fragile cockle shell adrift on the lucid, illimitable sea. Tyg smiled wryly to himself. The boat had proved sufficient so far. It had carried him safely, him and his forty brave warriors, along with the Sea Reaver prisoner guide. He had wondered at times how far this vast, wind-rippled, watery plain could really stretch. How far could it be to the enemy land of Freshen that had so completely stolen away his wife and his brothers? The Alvarak had been vague on this part of the rescue plan. But the realm of Malanan was by no means empty. They had marvelled as shoals of iridescent salmon danced dizzily in the sun-spattered waters. Uh, the cattle and kine of the Waterlord had been varied indeed. Great grey bull seals dove beneath their feet like javelin shadows, and there were others. Huge sea beasts, fountain-flowing streams into the misty air. It was a diverse and a beautiful world. But Tyg had realised that he was longing for the green of grass and earth beneath his feet. Then, as if his thought had taken shape and substance, there it was, a fair green isle, flat and wide and solid. And so now he stood on the welcome island while his warriors were hunting for fresh food, glad to be active. Idly he kicked at a smooth grey pebble lying immobile at his feet. It skittered along the surface of the velvet grass. <laughs> it didn't sink, he thought with a mental grin. There was a shout, followed by replying calls from within the trees. Oh, the hunt is up, he thought to himself, and turned to reach for his great throwing spear. His stomach rumbled. Oh, a joint of roasted meat would make a pleasant change. Yes, there they were, emerging from the wooded cover, a group of his best fighters. Oh, but there was no sign of any prey. Oh, surely his fighters were not running away. And then the great beast broke cover. It was a ram. Oh, but what a creature. It was the size of a stallion if not larger, and its magnificent fleece curled and flowed around it. The horns crowned its head like a coronet of curved knives. The warriors fanned out warily, seeking to bar its path, and for the moment the beast slowed until it stood at bay before them, eyes blazing and nostrils flaring with rage. Tyg raced to join his men. Oh, I'm sorry, sir, we couldn't hold it yelled his lieutenant. Oh, we tried to take down one of the ewes, and uh, the ram just went for us. The beast was readying itself to charge. It tossed its wild horns and pawed the ground with huge hooves, sparking the stone. Tyke nodded, and five javelins flew in unison. 
and the beast did no more than toss its head, and five broken shafts fell shattered around it. Tige took a wary step, and then another. Slowly, stealthily, he started to flank the huge animal. The ram ignored him, staring with baleful eyes at the warrior line, and the second wave of javelins raged against it, waiting to fly. Just as the beast began to charge, Tige let loose his javelin. Oh, it was a lucky cast, as he admitted later. But he watched in astonishment as the beast faltered and then sunk to its knees. And then he continued to watch in joyful relief as the ram's head fell and the creature shuddered and died. His men, already cheering, were on the fallen beast, ready to strip it of fleece and flesh. Tyke took a deep breath and called his warriors to order. Hey, take care in the butchering, lads, he called. That fleece'll see a snug on sea-drenched nights. As he walked back to the boat, he was smiling to himself. Oh, so they would not starve. If they could take the ram, even one of such gigantic size, uh, then they would feast on a fat weather or two while they were here, leaving plenty to prepare for their journey. Oh, they would not starve on the open sea. Where there was one island, there would be others. They would reach their goal, and he would save Liborne and his brothers from their imprisonment. Thoughtfully, he regarded the boat beached now until the tide should return it to its own element. Yes, they would reach their goal. But what wonders might he encounter on the journey? I really like today's story, yeah. but it's an Imroth style, but it's not very well known, is it? No, it isn't. Hey, do you remember when we first read it? Mm, yeah, it was when we were looking at the story of Tyke McCain, a local Leitrim story. Oh, yeah. Um, which uh, we talked about in Corpse Carrying for Beginners, yeah, but our then, seven special. And there he was the son of a farmer, wasn't mm. he? And um, a bit of a local Jack the Lad. Type. Yeah, yeah. And here he is, the son of a king and quite a hero. He is. I feel a bit bad because when we did glance at this story in relation to the 19th century local story we kind of called it theme park ireland and we're maybe a little bit dismissive um but it really is a very very interesting oh, story oh i've fallen in love with this yeah, story it's I a great really, one it's a great story yeah. now it, it is firmly within the middle irish period linguistically speaking so that's sort of 9th to 12th century the earliest manuscript uh, version is from uh, the book of lismore which mm -hmm. is about 15th century. I really love the language of this story, I have to say. Um, I, uh, we're working from a translation by Standish O'Grady from the Silva Gadelica. Yeah. Um, but but I, as usual, it came to life when you went back to the original Irish. Exactly. It? I think O'Grady's a little bit ham-fisted in his uh, translation. I can Ooh. see what he's trying to do. But, yeah, I uh, think the truth is that 19th century language is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's formal, but it's also trying to be archaic. Yeah, exactly. Trying exactly. to be sort of pseudo-medieval. And there's yeah. always this problem with, with 19th, late 19th century texts. Yes, yes. After all, they were trying to bring back something which seemed so long ago. Exactly. And at least they were translating the stories. They were, yes. But they did quite a bit of antiquing on the way. <laughs> so, who is Ty? Well, he's... An interesting character when you start to join the dots a bit. There, another of his main stories is the Battle of Cath Crinna. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in that one, um, it's very clear that he is closely tied up with characters such as Cormac McGart. Now, Cormac 
was this great legendary king um, who's said to be son of Art, who's the son of Concade Catholic. That's yeah, we'll be, the, the Hundred Battles. Yeah, we'll be talking about uh, Cormac, I think, uh, next time. Oh, we will indeed. And so it's interesting that there is this kind of connection here between those characters. But Concade Catholic is basically everybody's granddaddy, and he's also Tyg McCain's granddaddy. So there's a close familial relationship there between him and Cormac McCart. Um, but the Cathcrina story particularly is an origin story for the Kianacht, who were one of the many groups or sects around so Ireland. So he's a found, founder of a family. Exactly, exactly. And again, the Kianacht is in those descended from Cian, Tyg's father. Um, now, geographically, they seem quite widely spread in many ways. There's a, a sort of a clip of them up around Derry in, in the north. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the Cathcrina specifically talks about how uh, Ty got land from Cormac and that's all around Leinster that's sort of between Dublin and Lough that sort of area they're the Cianoc Brega the Cianoc of Bray. so um, it, he's very much that kind of authority uh, figure in terms of he gives authority to a particular branch and it's related to rights of kingship and mm-hmm. you know rights to land and so on yeah, as it's, well. it's making sure that we know who this family mm-hmm. is and the fact they have really good Good pedigree. Exactly, and a serious claim. Yeah. yeah. So it's funny, really, that they end up with Tyke, who's quite a hero, but yeah. quite a comical character at times. He is, and I think that there was a comment, um, I can't remember whose translation of Catherine I was reading, but they did comment that a lot of Tyke stories are comical. And this is what I noticed when we were talking about Tyke, and I went back to look at this text, the first thing I realised that this is a great story, and it's so funny. It's rollicking. Kind of satirical in places. It is, it is. I know why I'm so enthusiastic about this story. There's such a... A real oral structure. Yeah. You can feel that it's been designed to be told. In fact, more than that, designed to be performed. I think so, certainly, yeah. And uh, it feels craftsman-made. Mm. It's, a, it's it, When I say oral, I could say it's a literary piece, mm, mm. but it's an, it's an oral literary piece, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I feel it's very performative as, as well. You could almost see it as a script, you know. It would almost be a performed story. And one of the things that really kind of contributes to that is the presence of poetry. Yeah, well, as usual, I love yeah. it. But this is good stuff, isn't it? It really is. It's high quality. Now, for some reason, Standish O'Grady didn't see fit to include translations then of the sang a lay. Exactly. And then they both <laughs> sung a lay together. <laughs> the lay doesn't cover the no. quality of the poetry. No, it doesn't. And... Um, as I said that the prose is firmly within Middle Irish, the poetry I would kind of place, and this isn't my area of expertise, I would place it as sort of early Middle Irish. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying that because I can see quite a lot of sort of old Irish still in there with just the occasionally middle form. Although it's probably written within the Middle Irish period, mm-hmm. it is metrically incredibly well constructed. Uh, again, metrics I could never quite wrap my head around, whether it was English or Irish, um, partly because I'm always more interested in what the poem actually is says. This, is, is the metrical poetry uh, later in its uh, than the Ruskada? It's later than the Ruskada. The Ruskada are what you might term archaic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know quite a lot about um, the rules of metrics from Middle Irish texts, um, such as the one giving the um, curriculum for the training mm-hmm. of a poet. Uh, but the because of metrical rules, of course, that's what preserves the language mm-hmm. of the poetry. Um, a lot of the poems in this story seem to be in a metre like Devida. And uh, Devida Squilta particularly was said to be a metre good for the telling of histories, of Shenpas. Right. 
Um, and that's, that makes sense, yeah, doesn't it? And that seems very consistent. But there's a wonderful piece uh, where um, in this other land, Isle of we'll Promise, we will hear about it in a bit. But the, it, there's poetry put into the mouths of characters from, you know, obviously mythological times, and they're given a form of poetry which is an anawin. It's like the very highest, tightest metrical form you can make and it almost has that feel of Ruska the, these little short lines because you can only have three syllables in a line which is why it was the expert oh, form stuff, yeah. and it is wonderful but that says to me that the, the author of this piece and I think it is all one author in this piece is an olive he has done his 12 years training yeah you were telling me that this particular type of poetry mm. could only be spoken by, by the highest grade. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's... And by including that, our author is telling us that he's a pro, that he is actually of the olive So he's class. telling us that he's high status, yeah. and what's more, his characters are high status. Exactly. But he's also saying, but this, of course, is a, a piece about long ago. Yes. And yeah. in a very poetic and clever way, mm. he's including the language, the antique language as well. Exactly, exactly. So we're dealing with a quality piece here. I think so. I think we've both talked about it as a masterpiece in the old sense of a piece that you make to qualify as a master. Yeah, we've got quite excited about yeah. this, having yeah. started to study it. From Theme Park Island, we yeah. go, this is a lost masterpiece. Exactly. <laughs> very excited. Yeah. But although we mentioned the battle at the end, we're mm. only going to do the first half of yes. the story. So the whole of the, we'll put the whole of the text on the website. Yes. On the blog. Yeah, exactly. And it, it will, it does come, as I said, from the Silver Gadelica, which is this collection. So we're still going to have Sasha Grady. Yes. But I've, I've been kind of making little uh, amendments oh, along the way. So would we'll put you up that mind um, maybe putting a few lines of the spoken poetry? Oh yeah. Well, what I will. Yes, I certainly will. And what I'll do is um, in the English text, I'll just include the the poems as they are in Irish, yeah, because yeah. I think that even if you don't know the language, you can see the structure. Well, I want other people to be able to hear it. Yes. As I'm lucky enough to be able to hear it. <laughs> yeah. And it tells you so much from just listening. It to does. It. Yeah. But you know, we really ought to get back to the story. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing what I can say about this story. We can promise you, definitely no monks. No, this is a monk-free zone. <laughs> this story is very much set in the pseudo-historical cycle of kings, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those kind of, if you like, now traditional for uh, story cycles. And mm. when you get into this cycle of kings, they kind of, they because they link into things like the annals, they're seen as historical but as we said before I don't think they have the same idea about history mm -hmm. as we do but it means that it's kind of in a legendary framework rather than a really mythological framework mm -hmm. you know that this was imagined to be a historical character and you know a founder of a dynasty so this lucky jack character would be a fantastic ancestor to have oh you? yeah you can just imagine you go well of course i'm descended from tig himself you yes. know oh and if he could have adventures like that you know it's in my genes that's what i can do exactly a bit a bit like having robin hood for an ancestor or yeah. king arthur or something yeah. it would make a great television series wouldn't it it would i mean almost on the the lines of a doctor who or you know you wrote that article about the modern Imrov as the sort of space exploration so you know it's sort of in this episode Tiger's going to go do something heroic but he's also going to make a joke about like it going to sea yeah exactly. this week Tiger goes to sea yeah so I suppose in that case we better go and find out what precipitates our Tiger into this fantastic journey yes well at the beginning of this story of Tiger's adventures um, he is off on the other side of the country making a kingly circuit. He's doing a bit of kinging, 
orphan West Munster. Uh, he seems to have his family with him. His wife is Liban or Liban, and he's got two brothers called Arnaelach and Owen, and they're off around the Bear Peninsula. Uh, but while they're there, there's a great sea attack by marauders, the Alvarochs, uh, which just means, you know, sea raiders. sea raiders, yeah. yeah. And they attack the west coast. Um, their leader is a character called Cathan, son mm -hmm. of Tavern, and he <laughs> is the king of Freshen. Which, which is, is Frisia, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except that in O'Grady's text, yeah. is it in the original? It is in the original. Right, which yes. is it's near Spain. Yes, Frisia, near Spain. <laughs> so, yeah, geography, not a strong point for this author. <laughs> so these overseas marauders, anyway, come and they it says they catch the, the country napping. It's a surprise attack. Yeah. And that they have already completely surrounded both people and cattle before anyone knows what's happening. Basically, his entire family get kidnapped, don't yes. they? Or Frisian napped. And uh, <laughs> off they go. And it says that Tyg only escaped because of his superb weapon craft. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's course. a bit tough, actually, because his wife gets taken as a bedmate of, of Catherine. And it's yeah. quite clear about it. The text is quite clear. It definitely it? is, yeah. He took her for the purposes of his bed. But for his brothers, mm. they're turned into slaves. Mm. And it's interesting because Owen is, has to go and be a common ferryman, it yes. says. But Nerloch mm. is um, forced to haul firewood, which yeah. is definitely recalling Ultimate's job. Yeah, that's very familiar and interesting. You know, we, we had uh, the firewood hauler in another of the Imrova as well. So this is obviously a common image. And uh, all they get to eat is barley seed and muddy water. Yes, uh, it's Ishka uh, Kirdov, which is, you know, black, dark water to eat, to drink. So they're not given a good time. No. Now, our author is already showing his familiarity with the, the great material of Irish stories because Tyg's wife is given as Lee Bond. Mm -hmm. yeah, and she's got stories of her own, hasn't she? She certainly does. And if you go back to the very beginning of our series on Dinkenicus, when I talked to uh, Ranka de Vries about her edition of the stories of Loch Ney, mm -hmm. and she's done a lot of work, particularly on this character of Lee Bond, um, who, if it's Lee Bond, is like the, the beauty of of women but seems actually to be Lee Bourne a splendid whiteness mm -hmm. um, but in the story of Loch Ness she ends up essentially as a mermaid swimming mm -hmm. in Loch Ness and her little dog too who turns into an otter and keeps her company so you've got that Lee Bourne there who's a very curious character she also shows up in uh, the great story of the Shergliga Cun Cullen which is the sick line of Cú Cullen mm -hmm. where he is made sick with love for these fairy women and the fairy women are found and Lee Bourne mm -hmm. um, and their means of seduction is to essentially beat Crap! I was at a Cucullan <laughs> with big sticks, and that seems to work for him. That's <laughs> probably all you can do with Cucullan, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Lee Bond. You know, she's not some throwaway. You know, and nobody. Because you can say, oh, they're different people with the same name, but mm. this is not how stories tend to no, work. No. If you have a name, they tend to have the same quality, don't they? They do. And um, what we'll find throughout this, as we've said, I think throughout this series, this is intertextuality par excellence mm. you know and every time um, a reader or a listener hears the name they'll immediately associate especially it. with this so self-aware author exactly who's deliberately bringing as much as he can from mm. all the best of irish stories exactly into this masterpiece yeah so it's very deliberate and so he is he is giving his audience a particular image yeah, when this, he calls this, this her wife language, energised language. Yeah. It's almost worthy of uh, Elliot. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> the footnotes are definitely longer than the story. <laughs> 
there, there's, there's one other thing. He doesn't seem quite so good on geography, but that's no. not his fault. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the Milesians are supposed to have come from Spain. Yeah. It just means far away. Yeah. Um, by the time this story is put together, the Sea Raiders are extremely well known. And yeah. It's also known where they came from. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but it's still out there. Yeah. Just like the men of Lachlan. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, over they, there. Over there. They may be, they probably are um, Norse Raiders, mm. but they're just from... Far Not away, there. yeah, exactly. So the fact that he's saying that they're off to Frisia, which Near is Spain. southeast of Spain, I think he says even, yeah. which suggests a Mediterranean island. Yeah. And yet they come from the north. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't belong here. Exactly. They're just from the continent <laughs> or the mainland. <laughs> Tiger's now lost a lot of his men, but he's mm. still got 40 good warriors, yeah. 40 good fighters. And so he decides that he's not going back home. He's going to kick out a boat and take them on a voyage of vengeance and reparation yes so he sets to work building his boat now this boat is to be it says 25 thwarts i don't know if that's long or wide what's a thwart uh, well the word that's used in the text what it refers to is a bench upon which the oarsmen sit oh right so 25 maybe pairs of oarsmen can fit into this boat. so you've got a boat which it was take a bench yeah on each side that's long enough mm -hmm. to hold 25 rowers on each side yeah which is not far from what he talks about exactly 40 yeah. men. it does say that it's covered with 40 ox hides mm -hmm. which have been um what does it say oak soaked hard leather yeah so they're tanned in oak again which i think we've come across we before we have come across yeah before. <laughs> it had tall thick masts and broad bladed oars and he gets to take qualified pilots with oh, him yeah. and enough food and drink for a year's voyage as well as fresh clothes yes clothes specifically mentioned <laughs> very practical and then they set off on the spring tide don't forget about the captive that they bring with them. Oh, yeah. As well as Taig's own uh, war band, they have one of the Alvarok raiders as a kind of a guide as well as a prisoner or yeah. hostage. So he's got him all the way across. He sort of packs him into the boat and yeah. says, you're going to take me to Frisia near Spain. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy, the enemy guy said, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> And then yeah. this boat, it's a Kirk, isn't it? It really is. I mean, in many ways, the description is so similar to the description of the boat building in Brandon. And you're much more familiar with Kirks than I am. Well, they're just such beautiful boats, you know. I mean, the Kirks that you would see now around the West Coast, they're generally, you know, two-man, four-man mm -hmm. boat. And, you know, each person in the boat has a pair of oars that they're mm -hmm. using. These craft that are being described are obviously on a bigger scale, mm -hmm. you know, um, but they they do all seem to have both the oars and the and rigging. The sails, yeah. yeah. So, again, I think we've got an author who really knows his marine stuff. You know, he's another boat lover like the author in Brendan. Yeah, and I love the description mm. of how they run to launch the boat. It's great. Yeah, it's very visual. In yeah. fact, I think there's a Jack Yates painting, which yeah, is I know almost one. exactly yeah, that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and they take a change of clothes. Yeah. Unlike the monks. I know. <laughs> so once they have this boat launched, they head straight out to sea for 20 days. And there's this beautiful description of the marine life. Mm, it's um, wonderful. It is gorgeous. And again, for O'Grady's ham-fisted attempts, you know, you, you do have to look at the original language because it is just full of imagery and poetry and sound. Uh, they talk, he talks about this 
iridescent salmon leaping up out of the water. Talks about these great grey bull seals. I think you used some of it in your story. A little bit, At yeah. the beginning, yeah. Um, and, of course, great whales, which are spouting up out of the sea and so on. And he says how the whole crew are just amazed and enchanted by this, yeah. you know. And, again, it's this sense that the author has this both knowledge and love for sea life, you know, yeah, and yeah. for being out on a boat. That would be a, a, a lovely bit if you could speak on that. I'll I'll have a look and see yeah. see what I can do. Yeah, it always takes a lot of time. It does, it? I'm afraid. Yeah, and of course, loads of birds again. Yes, and here we have it's an Imrov because it's been heralded by birds. They've got all these unknown, wondrously sounding birds. And yeah, being an Imrov, they reach the first island. Of course. So yeah. we've got to the island of sheep. Yes, and that's the the really the, the story I told at the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they land on a fair green island and have a pleasant sleep on the grass mm. without anything rocking at yes. all. <laughs> and in the morning, Ty goes to look for inhabitants and finds flocks of sheep as big as horses. Mm. I know I've given it to his men in the story, but ah, yeah. just to make it fit. Yeah. And uh, one gigantic ram attacks Ty's people by attempting to butt them. Now, I thought it meant that the ram got annoyed. No. But you were telling me that uh, it's, it's actually... the ram attacks and they get annoyed. Exactly. They were irritated <laughs> by it. <laughs> I think I'd be irritated by yes, a ram. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Go and sit down. <laughs> anyway, the ram breaks five stays before Ty gets it with a lucky javelin yes. throw. Yeah. And then they um, prepare the meat and um, prepare to uh, feast themselves. Yes. They also comment on this amazing wool. Yes. And I keep waiting for them to go, hey, this is almost as good as the cold Jason's golden fleece. Yes, yes. But it's got that feeling about it. It does. Like, Look, you know, he may have had a golden fleece, but a lot of we've got. Yeah. This yeah. is better. Exactly. You can knit with this one. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, they also find remains of giant human bones, but yes. no inhabitants. No. And that's basically it. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a very familiar island. It is, We've yeah. been here before. We certainly have. It's, uh, it's starting to feel like a prerequisite of an emerald that you have to have a sheep island. It does seem to be one that's necessary. Yeah. Isle of birds and Isle of sheep. Exactly, yeah, as we certainly found before. Um, I, this thing about finding the remains of giant humans is interesting, even though they don't find any human inhabitants. And it made me think of the island in Maeldun, um, where there was this giant horse race, where again they saw like the leavings of giants' picnic, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And um, they never encounter the the giant humans there. They run away before oh, they. Oh, we're back to dinosaur bones. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Here we are <laughs> finding giant bones. Mind you, I don't this, think this is the only single island where a giant ram attacks people. Yeah, that's a nice one, but yeah. this is unique. It is rather. Um, now I found it interesting. Um, this description of Tyke having this javelin and the the lucky cast and mm. so on, because it says how the spear was one that no one could escape when it was thrown. Oh, we've met this one before. We have. That's how Lou's spear yeah. is described at the opening of Matura. And what's more, Lou is a son of Cian. Yeah. And here's Tig, son of Cian. So again, we give... Lou's lucky spear. Exactly. So given our author's, you know, clear um, conversance with the entirety of the Irish text. He's packing in the references he again, is, isn't he? He is. Yeah, very and deliberately. And of course, uh, you've got your usual birds and sheep. Yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, they are birds and sheep every year in Brendan. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> over and over, over and, and over again. again. <laughs> well, it's straight on immediately to the island of the giant blackbirds. Well, they're not blackbirds. No, they're not. But <laughs> yes, they come to another island. It seems quite close by mm. um, the island of the sheep. Um, and it says that it's full of all of these great birds. It says they're 
like blackbirds, except that they're as big as eagles or perhaps cranes, and moreover, they're not even black. Um, it describes them as having... Uh, Was it red? Well, yeah, O'Grady says red, but the colour is kirkra, which is that kind of pinky purple. Um, okay. Yeah. Or, Shocking pink with exactly, green heads. Yeah, and green heads. Now, they also find some of the eggs of these birds, which I think are blue with... Um, purple patches on them. Blue and purple spots. Yes. Um, but when some of the crew eat these eggs, suddenly they sprout feathers all over their bodies. <laughs> but it's not so bad as all that, because as soon as they wash, all the feathers fall off. <laughs> I love it. It's yeah. absolutely great. Yeah. Um, so, But this is your unique island. It is. And it doesn't happen anywhere else, yeah. does it? No, it doesn't. This is, this is one that we certainly haven't heard before. We find birds pretty much in every emerald. But what's more, um, just like in Brendan, here we've got the sheep and the bird island right next to each other. So our, it's quite likely that our um, author knows Brendan as I well. would say so, well, yeah. Well, personally, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you never know. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. But I, I'm kind of curious about this business of the colour, and it comes up again later. Whenever they meet birds, they're always kind of technicolour. Um, now here, O'Grady has translated Kirkra as red. I think in later passages he translates it as crimson, but basically every time it is this colour Kirkra. Now this is quite an important colour, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, the word itself has the same root as purpura, which of course gives us purple in English. Mm -hmm. um, but in the Irish it tends to refer to, I almost think of it as the colour of a foxglove, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, and it's very often attributed to, you know, the, the, someone's cheeks. You know, um, and the oh, sort of the, cheeks. Yeah, yeah, but sort sort of you know a a good blush, mm -hmm. a good colour on the cheeks, um, and it's also particularly associated with nobility. I think that's the point, isn't it? Exactly. It's the to wear the purple. Yes. Or the crimson. Yeah, yeah. It's that. It's it's a colour that indicates royalty, nobility. Exactly. Pretty good stuffness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now something that. Uh, only really became clear to me in reading the Irish that I don't think is really um, picked up on well in O'Grady's translation is that it seems to be the Alvarach, who's the, their prisoner, their prison guide or whatever, um, who gives them the information that if they wash, the feathers will fall off. So that's where they get, they know what to do. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Don't Whereas, worry, don't worry, I'm going to help you out here. Yeah, yeah. Just go and take a bath and you'll be okay. Exactly. O'Grady kind of favours a reading that just suggests that it's the Alvarok who's telling them which way to go. It says, you know, he's been this way before. But I think that the information he's giving them is about, you know, don't worry about the eggs, just I've take been a this way before. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But I do love this idea. These are blackbirds, only they're not black. Yes. And uh, they're, they're not the size of blackbirds. Yes. They're the size of each. They sound like parrots to me. They do a bit, but you know... Or rosellas. You know? Yeah, yeah. They're sort of highly coloured tropical birds, but... You know, I mean, you might as well say that Tyg obviously then got as far as Australia. What, you it, mean like Brenda went to America? Yeah, yeah come on. I know. <laughs> well, after all, I suppose if you can say, I don't know, we're going to um, Frisia via Spain yeah. or maybe south of Spain, yeah. you know, maybe it ends up in Australia. Yeah, right? exactly. Not really, not really. <laughs> don't be that. I just love these birds. Yeah, they're great. And I mean, the, the thing with the birds, of course, we've seen in the other Imrov is they're prophetic birds. Mm. And this is where I think the black comes from. The, the yes. author seems to, you know, 
blackbird, as it were. Yeah. You know, the, the birds, of the prophetic birds of the Morrigan. Yes. Or the singing birds of Rhiannon. Yeah. And the, the ouzel, the blackbird, mm. was mm. always, if you like, the friendly version of the raven. Yes. You know, the, the prophetic bird that sings a beautiful song at dawn. Mm. And so much has been written about the ouzel, yes. the blackbird. And, of course, we found this in our explorations of the Morrigan as well, that although, you know, one of her forms is bad of the scold crow, that there are other sources where it really does seem to be the singing blackbird. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've talked about the Rihanna. Yeah, and we've talked about Morrigan as you know the 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 prophet prophet as poetess. You know, so that kind of links up. It's part of the roles of poetry. It is the, yeah. the, the songs that can be sung, like the song of, of blame and the song of praise. Yes, yeah. You know, the crow and the blackbird. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. Anyone... Or the prophecy of doom and the prophecy of yeah, bliss. Yeah. You know. So the the, the blackbirds do have an important role to play. Yeah. And I think our author is just making sure that we've got the bit about them being prophetic. Exactly, yeah. And he's referencing so much poetry. Isn't he? Yeah, yeah. But again, I, we, we have talked a lot about birds in all of these Imrova, as you said. Um, it's interesting, though, that they're not the white birds like the swans. But when we find those white birds, they're very often transformative. You know, they're transformed humans, like we found at the end of Mither and Aideen. Mm -hmm. And so often the white bird goes between worlds and can change its shape, sort of like the... the... And the black bird offers prophecy. Exactly. I so mean, this do... is this is the tendency. This yeah. Isn't strict, yeah. Although it's true that the white bird as a transformer mm. is a, a motif that's found in a lot of European folk tales, mm. not mm. just in Ireland. Exactly. I'll just yeah. take the, you know, the, the, the swan princes. Yes. That horrible story where she has to, the girl, the, oh, the yeah. sister, has to knit them all shirts of nettles yes. without saying a word. Yeah, yeah. That's just... Uh, yeah, sadistic. Exactly. There's a lot of them in, in Grimm, all right, you know, and Grimm they are. I really think that this author has very deliberately and very deftly included all of those bird qualities into mm. this little, you know, seemingly straightforward story, if you like, about yeah. eating eggs and turning into birds. He's packed it with symbolism. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we sort of have an interlude. Mm. So they travel on for, what is it, a month seeing nothing. Yeah, well, O'Grady, for some reason that I just can't fathom, uh, translates this as six weeks. I don't know why. The word is mish. That means a month. I well, don't know where he's got that from. A terrible storm blows up mm. and they're buffeted around mm -hmm. and they become utterly lost. Yes, and in fact, it's their Alvaruk prisoner who describes describes them as being Vara, which is kind of made confused or mad by the sea. In a way, he sort of declares an Imrov. Yes, yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> where we are. It's now an Imrov. Yeah. Ah, let's go mad. Let's go mad, yes. I shall run mad. Fetch me a violin. The crew are terrified, but uh, Tig says, you know, he says, don't, don't be afraid. In fact, he says that he will row all the oars on one side of the boat yeah. all by himself just to make it easy for him. Yeah. And the weather improves and they hoist sails surrounded mm -hmm. by seabirds. Yeah. Look, I've got it on my mind. You better explain that <laughs> violin bit. <laughs> Uh, Love and Friendship by Jane Austen. Yeah, so if you want... Early stories that weren't published in her lifetime. And yes, there is this wonderful quote, I shall run I'm mad, mad. Fetch, fetch me a violin. They have mistaken him for, for a, a cucumber. cucumber. So if ever you want <laughs> to fool people completely, yeah. give that and say, who said that? Yeah. And I guarantee, or we guarantee, yeah. nobody will know it's Jane, Jane Austen. Austen. It's yeah. a brilliant quiz question. It is. Anyway, back to the rainbow. <laughs> yes, back to our <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> well, the voyage, I think we were talking about 
The Voyage of Ven- Vengeance, I think at this point, does become an Imrod. It does, yeah. Uh, because I, what I think is they've been called to the land of promise. At that moment, yes. getting lost exactly. means they have no other destination other than the land of promise. Exactly. And that defines an Imrod. It does. It's the point of Imrod. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that it is sort of the outsider in their midst. It is their prisoner enemy who has announced that. Well, one of the things when I on that article I was I wrote on it's on the blog mm. called uh, you know Imrov in a broader mythological co- context. I tried to define mm. what what are the elements that you have to have in an Imrov. Yeah. And one of these is to do with outside agency. Mm. And I, I think it's interesting that here where you haven't got God or mm. Mananan, yeah. but you've got an outsider yeah. who declares the Imrov. Yeah. It's he who says we are lost. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think the rules hold. It's yeah. an Imrov. What I like, though, is also the contrast. Mm. Taig has control. Yes. He's not giving up. No. <laughs> not like the monks who just sit and pray. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait for God to do it all for I them. I know, yeah. No, so here we've sort of got somebody who's still being a hero. Yeah. In spite of the fact that he's just found himself in an Imrov. Yes. <laughs> he thought he was off, off to rescue his family. He yeah. thought he was on a lecture and he's told, sorry, it's an Imrov, yeah. lads. Change of plan. And he goes, no, I'm still going to row the boat. <laughs> So finally, we make it to the Isle of Promise. Fantastic. <laughs> he finds a beautiful green flatland with a gentle estuary and they take the boat in. And there they are on silver white sand and uh, this river estuary full of salmon mm. and uh, purple top trees. Yes. Well, O'Grady in his particularly idiosyncratic way has called the trees M purple. Oh, yeah. It's kind of... <laughs> purple trees. Yes. The funny thing is that it always makes me think of birch trees in the spring. Oh yes. Just before the leaves break you get yeah, this sort of purple. purple. It yeah. means that everything is just about to burst into life. Exactly. Whether yes. that's what they mean by purple top trees or not I'm not sure. Well they're empurpled according to O'Grady anyway but they also see these great apple trees which are covered in ripe it's juicy apples and in fact Ty comments uh, that he it's surprising because it's winter at home and lo and behold here they are it's summer so now Tyg has said for definite you know this isn't Kansas anymore there's these great apple trees and of course multicolored birds who are all singing beautifully and sweetly and there's even hazel trees with big yellow hazelnuts on them we get the berries again don't we we do these, yeah. these wonderful berries like trees with grapes on mm. yeah and they're each as big as a man's head as you might expect <laughs> <laughs> right okay coconut size grapes like yes. trees yeah show that up balloons or something <laughs> But it no, it's definitely the land of promise. Mm. And I mean, Ty goes on about that. Oh, the singing of these birds is so beautiful that it would send even a wounded man to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Which we were saying seems to be the kind of the standard for a good sleep. It's the same kind of thing is said of the Suan Traga, the sleeping strain of music, that it is so sweet that even the grievously ill and the grief stricken will fall asleep with it. So that seems to be, you know, the ideal of good sleep for yeah. the early Irish. You sort of got everything now. You've, yeah. you've got your healing apples. Yeah. You've got your hazelnuts, which yeah. are connected with wisdom and, and health. And you've got these red berries, mm. which um, in the old stories are usually quicken berries. The rowan berries. Rowan yeah, berries, yeah. yeah. Which uh, are, are very much to do with uh, life. Yeah. And uh, rebirth in some mm. cases, mm. you know, that they rejuvenation is what that, I yes. mean. Yeah. So you've got everything that should be here yeah. in a good other world. Everything's here. Exactly. And there even is a plain which they describe as full of honey-dripping clover. 
Yeah. And that's my canal. So it's got the lot. Well, on this Great Plain, there are also three hills. And on each of the hill, there is a dune, a stronghold, uh, which is on the brow or the side of the hill. Um, and the first one that they encounter has these walls of shining white marble. Yeah, now I find this interesting mm. because immediately what comes to mind is the, the Brunaboyne, or should I say the restored New Grange. Yes. And uh, that's had the wall put back at the, mm. the revetment wall, which was fallen. And so what you actually see is a sort of shining drum shape of mm. white marble. Yeah. It does have the same feeling, although I don't know that it's connected. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, the, there are no people... Uh, saying they don't necessarily think that that would have been its original appearance, you know, that the the, the white quartz might have been in patterns or, you know, that it yeah, wasn't necessarily a wall of white. The archaeology is fairly set sound. Yeah. What I thought of in terms of this sort of shining white wall was the description in Wildoon, uh, when they're coming to the island of the cat, they say that, you know, all of these buildings are all of snowy white stone, you know, sort of bright and shining. Obviously, they can see it from far out to sea. I think that as we discover in this fortress, we don't have the kind of most ancient, most distant ancestors, which is what you would expect to find both in Brunaboyne and we've yet to see in the Island of Cat. <laughs> so this fortress has a tour guide, as you might expect, and it is a woman. And she introduces herself as the daughter of... Gothnia, wife of Slaunia, who in turn is the son of Dela, son of Loth. So she's given uh, her own ancestry. Tyg immediately greets her as queen and asks her for the history of Ireland. Mm. And yet she's able to tell him everything from the coming of Kesser yeah. to the time of the Sons of Mill. Yeah. So I suppose she's sort of setting out ancestry here and yes. uh, uh, her pedigree exactly. and the pedigree of the place. Yeah. But what's this with her name? Well, she doesn't directly have a personal name. No, I noticed that. Yeah, and you you do sometimes get characters and stories who are just known as Ingen X, you know, the daughter of X or Yeah, X but here, this is our main tour guide. Exactly, so yeah. So she's the daughter of Gothnia. Yes. Now, Gothnia seems to me to mean a sort of a shining dart. Um, Goth is like a sort of um, sharp spear point or, you know, something that is slender and sharp. Slanya could kind of be echoing Oith Slanya, who is another one of the, bit like Cuncade Cathach, another one of the sort of king ancestors. But of course, Slanya just means health or wholeness. Yeah. Dela is an interesting one. It seems to mean kind of udders or teats and is, is stands as a metaphor for kind of hospitality and for kinship and affection. And I think I read that sometimes a poetic name for like the men of Ireland was the sons of Dela. So, again, something very ancestral and about It's that thing kinship. about uh, of one breast on one lap. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then as for the loath, loath, again, you know, it could be a multitude of things. One thing I thought was kind of interesting, given the, the fleece of the ram that Tyg has brought with him, is that it can mean this sort of down or pile, you know, something that is soft and fluffy. And, you know, so I thought that maybe that was... It, what you're giving to. me here is a set of allegorical names. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That she is immediately introducing herself as, as it were, a metaphor. Yes, as a set of qualities. Set of qualities yeah, that yeah. represent this aspect of Ireland yeah. that she wants to introduce him to. Yeah, and it's it's that aspect is very firmly part of this Lever Gavola tradition. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. This text, which is um, 
clearly involved in setting out the different ancestor groups. Yeah. It seems to be, there's definite synchronism with the Laragawala. Yeah, there absolutely is. Again, Laragawala, as we've talked about many times before, Book of Invasions is how it's usually um, translated, or the Book of the Taking of Ireland. Um, it's a very firmly Middle Irish text. We did discuss it a fair bit in connection to Cathmagaturids, because... Um, Again, sometimes the Battle of Moitura mm. is part of the Laragavola tradition. Um, but it was very much part of this Middle Irish project of synchronising the traditional Irish ancestry and slotting that into the kind of the biblical genealogies and the biblical history. So it was this very synthetic project. And um, there's a number of places where our text, Tide McCain, it's very deliberately referencing it, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. you can start to see that in Middle Irish text. It, it obviously becomes the kind of a, a basis of knowledge, of if you like. They never thought to call it Once Upon a Time in the West, the no. approximately five invasions of Ireland. No, they didn't. <laughs> that probably needs a bit of explaining. Yeah. Well, a few years ago, when we were running a performance arts group called Hidden Myth, mm. we actually turned the, the book of invasions yeah. into a theatre in the street show yeah. not street theatre theatre in the street show <laughs> mm -hmm. where we actually told the whole series yeah it was great fun wasn't it it was it was a lot of fun <laughs> and I'm sure that Chris is now going to put up pictures <laughs> oh well look let's get on with the story yeah. well Tyg goes on to ask his hostess about the fortress and she tells him that it is the royal fortress of all the kings of Ireland from Erevon who was one of the first Milesian king, supposedly, all the way down to Concade Cathach, who was Tyg's own grandfather. Yeah, Con of the Hundred Battles. Of the Hundred Battles, exactly, yeah. yes. Now, it seems to me what he's doing here is connecting the current dynasties with its legendary predecessors. Exactly, yes, which is very much part of that whole Lerigwala Middle Irish project. Fitting everybody into yeah, their place. exactly, yeah. Tyg asks her what this country is called, and she tells him it's called Inishlucha, which just means the island of the lake. Um, and she also tells him that it has two kings currently, and they are Ruadruch and Derekriecha, and they are both sons of Bodhav. Now, once again, he's now linking these, these, his predecessors and the current dynasty mm. to the other world ancestry. Exactly, yes. And I mean, uh, Bodhav appears in a lot of Middle Irish texts, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, we haven't really found him. This is Bodhav Derig, um, you know, Red Bodhav. Uh, and we haven't found him in the sort of the early mythological tales that we've at looked all. at. It doesn't appear in Moitura, it doesn't appear in like the Aiden and Mither stories. He's the king who's involved with the children of Turin, isn't he? He, he is, All yeah. these slightly later texts, yes. Both of Darug is very clearly there exactly. as the king. Yes. And the high king as well. Yeah, or sort of the king of the fairies of, almost. You yeah, know? but he's also the king of the Dodonna. Yeah, exactly. At exactly. that point. Um, yeah, he also crops up in tales like the children of Lear which I, from what I can gather is early modern Irish. Um, now, I do think this is one example where we have a shift from a feminine character to a masculine mm -hmm. character. It doesn't happen as much as some people might think, but I honestly think in this case that Bathev, Bive, the scold mm -hmm. crow, one of the shapes of the Moregan. Um, one of her aspects, if one, you like, yeah, exactly. one of her qualities. Exactly, yeah. That that has actually been masculinised into this king 
bother Derek because the words bother bother there is no linguistic difference between mm -hmm. them. Um, and so while Bathav was the scold crow, Bathav Derek is just the red scold crow or the blood red mm -hmm. scold crow. So, um, but again, he's masculine. He's often associated with characters like the Dagda and Oingus. And as we know, Morrigan and Dagda are absolutely okay. inseparable. <laughs> so I do think this is a case where that's happened, but I don't think it happens quite as frequently as some people might think. And what think. about the current kings of yeah. the island? Now, these are also kind of linked in, if you like, in terms of imagery. If their names are certainly relevant. They are, because you've got Ruadhruch and Derekrieke. And Ruad, as I'm sure we've said yeah. before, is the red of dried blood, that rusty that red. That rusty red. Yeah. yeah. And Dereg, of course, is the colour of fresh blood. So here you have these this pair of coloured kings in this island of the lake, and they are sons of this red scald crow yeah yeah there's something going on there yeah but they as a, i think the point we're making here is that they 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 only appear in the middle irish yes exactly yeah most definitely i would they, say and that these named kings i wouldn't expect to find them anywhere outside this story again they're here for the purpose they're here to describe a quality you know the, the so uh, is he suggesting that this was quite a bloodthirsty dynasty <laughs> it's very possible you know i mean it's a well, favorite color this, this fits something i think we're going to come back to yeah, later yeah <laughs> anyway let's go on with yes this. well when he's got all this information yeah. he then asks uh, the woman about the middle fortress this is the golden fortress yes. and she said well go and find out for yourself <laughs> So off he goes, yeah. and this time he meets a queen dressed in gold, and mm. she welcomes him, but she tells him that his visit has been long foretold. Yeah, so he's been chosen. He's expected. Yeah. <laughs> we do get a name for this woman. Oh, yeah. She's Kessa herself. Yes, who's given here, as elsewhere, as the daughter of Bith, son of Noah, the first woman who ever came to Ireland with her father, Bith, and two other men, Fintan and Ladra. And, of course, after her time in Ireland, mm. of course, they've obviously come to this wonderful island yeah. to live here eternally. Yes. And not alone in the Golden Fortress, because she's also got... Uh, Long. Yeah. She's got Nevered, she's got the Fibolog, yeah. and the Dodonna, yeah. she doesn't mention the Fovera. She doesn't, but maybe <laughs> that's just out of politeness. But it certainly is all of the great and noble people right the way up to the coming of the Sons of Mill. She's extremely knowledgeable, and of course when he says what's the name of the land, she says, well you've already been told. Yeah. But uh, he pushes her a little and she says, well actually it's called um, the Island of the Red Lock. Yeah, Inishtheraglocha. And given our conversation we've just had about the Ruath and the Derrick and so yeah. on, I think it's interesting that that's the bit that's been added here. In this red lock mm. is an island surrounded by a great golden palisade. Mm. And she carefully tells, tells him that behind this palisade live all the most holy saints and righteous men. <laughs> um, this island, she tells him, is called Patmos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about this is that she's carefully, they seem to have got their extreme monasticism completely under control. They've got it confined behind a golden palisade. Yeah, literally behind it's the fence. It's there, but behind the fence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's saying basically that the, the holy men, the holiest of holies, they have this little island with a great big fence all around it. But the pre-Christian Irish leaders, the mythological greatnesses, they get the entire island and, and a, the golden a golden fortress. fortress. <laughs> you know, it's a bit more room to stretch their legs. You know, it just makes me think this joke is incredibly old. Oh, you mean about the one when uh, someone goes to heaven and, yeah. and sees a great wall across the centre yeah. of heaven and says, uh, what's the meter? What's that wall for? Yeah. 
And it's told, well, various Yeah, things. depending on where you're from. It's some particular religious you sect. You say, oh, that's so, that's so the, the Jehovah Witnesses can yeah. they're the only ones there. Exactly. But it could be the We Freeze, yeah. or it could be, you know... Whatever you're having yourself. And this time it's, that's, that's just so the um, the extreme monasticists yeah. just think that, don't worry, they're the only ones who've made it through. Exactly, they're the elect. <laughs> Just think that's brilliant. It is. It is. It just shows a joke of antiquity. And yeah. of course, Patmos is yeah. a, a very carefully chosen name because that's where St. John the Divine, uh, it's an island off Turkey, and mm. that's where he lived and probably wrote Revelations. Yeah. Kessler goes on to give even more explanation and information, and she tells Taig that this land of promise, this Inishterglucha, um, is one of four paradise lands in the world. The others, there's Inishdalev, which she says is to the south. Uh, there's Inish Eskandra, which she says, I think, is to the, to north. the north. And then there's Adam's paradise. That you really need to explain what the names mean, because this is yeah. fascinating. Yeah, this has really opened something up, because... It's kind of easy to dismiss the names as kind of random, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I really don't think that's they are. That's what I thought. You know, that's mm. that's what I thought when I first looked at them. Exactly. They were just made up. Uh, yeah, yeah. But they're not. No, I don't think so. The Inish Dolev, which is the one she says is to the south. Now, the best I can kind of come up with that it seems to fit is Doyle as a beetle. Now we've had you know Brickwood Doyle Tenga or you know the beetle tongues and so on before, um, but as well as kind of evoking real darkness and blackness beetles are also very much associated with the the decomposition of the body after death and mm-hmm. um, so that's your inish dolev um, yeah. which makes sense that the eskandra which again i wasn't expecting to find anything but in fact there is a verb eskand uh, or eskand which is uh, to curse Right. And so that gives us a sort of a land of the curse. So what you're telling me is that one of these other afterlife, other world worlds yeah. is the land of dust, mm. of the shades. Mm-hmm. This is the old uh, Hebrew shell. Mm-hmm. It's the um, probably more familiar uh, Greek and Roman Hades. Yeah. Hobo has Achilles talking about the land as being a land of uh, meaninglessness, mm. of um, where they wander with nothing to do, yeah, where yeah. they are just physical bodies. Mm. In Gilgamesh, the land of the shades is mm. uh, if you, you know, if you're not fed, you will eat clay. Yeah. So unless your people provide you with food, yeah. all you will have to eat is clay and muddy water. No yeah. matter if you were a king. Exactly. Everybody is treated the same. Yeah, yeah. Appallingly. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just nothingness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think this fits very well with this beetle darkness. Yeah, exactly. And then the second one is even more fascinating mm-hmm. because here this land of curses. Well you've got the development of Hades, which is Tartarus, mm-hmm. or you get into hell. Exactly, yeah. You familiar know, you, Christian hell, a yeah. punishment for doing Punishment, wrong. a cursed place. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the land, land of the shades, the land of, of the cursed hell, and then, of course, Adam's paradise. Well, in a way, that's also a failed experiment. Mm, mm. It was a beautiful Garden of Eden, mm. but humans were thrown out. Exactly, yeah. As yeah. A, so you've got three, if you like, other, not paradises, but other worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got this one. Yes. The Isle of Promise. Yeah. I mean, this is fascinating. <laughs> well, what I like about this is that he's laying out a very clearly Irish other world, um, but that it can, it relates to and can encompass all of these other kind of afterlife, underworld, other world traditions. But also kind of clearly go, ours is the most fun. Ours is the nicest to get to. Yeah. You know? Do you know, this is when I, when I was, first reading through mm. 
tired of preparing for this. I was also in the middle of trying to write an article about mm. the Irish other world mm. and the other, including the Christian yeah. afterlife other worlds, yeah. and calling it underworld other world. Yeah. And in fact, this actually, this 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 poet, this author, is saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Compare these lands of dust or punishment yeah. to our easygoing other world, exactly. where everybody can have fun. Yeah, which would you prefer? <laughs> and what I like even better is mm. that the Christian paradise of the righteous yeah. is only one little enclave yeah. in a very expansive realm. Yeah. This is really taking in my father's house around many mansions. Yes, yeah. Literally. Exactly. As yeah. lovely. As well as the old joke. <laughs> as well as the old joke, yeah. <laughs> it's now on to the last of the three fortresses. He, mm -hmm. he asks who lives in the silver fortress and is given the usual answer. Yeah. Go and see. <laughs> Go find out for yourself. Yeah. So by the beautiful silver fortress, there's this, uh, oh, this young couple, mm. very serene, all dressed in green, mm. with elaborate golden neck chains and talks. Mm. And they sort of look alike. He says maybe he thinks they might be they brother, brother and sister. sister. Yeah. Yeah. And they, of course, greet him effusively. Yeah. Well, there's this wonderful exchange of wealth welcoming poems and uh, the poem that uh, these, this young couple speaks to Tighe is very much stands out as different from the other bits of poetry in the text and um, it seems to be in the uh, meter of Anavan and it has almost a feel of a Rusk poem to it as well very it's these very compact. short tight lines Anavan is a meter where you only have three syllables to work with and the last word must be a monosyllable must be one syllable so you know that's really but the haiku sound positively lax exactly yeah i feel like it very much is a haiku form mm -hmm. but in that wonderful um poem which demonstrates all the different meters it specifically says anavan can only be used by an olive so mm -hmm. it's very high to, highest grade of filler um, and it's to show off their expertise that they can make this really tight form. So our author is expressing his status. Exactly. He's, he is showing his ability but I think he's also kind of antiquing it a bit because it has this very kind of archaic feel to it and this very compact language that you get within yeah. forms like the Rusk. Um, I really feel like he is saying we're getting into something really ancient here. I think it's a sense of who we're going to meet now. Exactly. It, maybe it's with this is quite a formal greeting. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, very much. But yeah. also saying, you know, we're coming into some of the old bits of story now. The woman of course answers his questions and this is where it gets interesting. Oh yeah. Um she gives herself as one of the four daughters of Adam mm. separated because of these bit of trouble. Mm. They're not allowed to live together because yeah. of this. Um and she calls herself uh, Veniusa or, or Weniusa. Mm. And she says she's got sisters who are called Aliusa, Eliusa, and Letiusa. Oh, yeah. she, sounds made up. It does. And at first glance, that was my assumption. I thought they were faint Latin when I first well, read Well, they them. are. They are sort of Latinized. And uh, mm. the first thing that kind of occurred to me in terms of this Weniusa or, or, or Veniusa is I wondered whether it was kind of referring to Phineas Farsad, who's part of this kind of Middle Irish um, synthetic tradition. Um, I think it, it, his story's told in the Oric at Nanagus, mm -hmm. um, where he's given the origin of the Irish mm -hmm. language from the Tower of Babel, you know, that he mm -hmm. took all the best bits of all the other languages and that's how Irish was made, <laughs> you know. Um, but when I started looking at it in terms of maybe, well, is there something in the other ones? There is, of course, the, the Ven or when part could just be Ben, which is woman, yeah. you know. Um, then with yeah. Laetius, uh, um, again, the 
closest I could come up with was less, which means kind of half, half. but also one of two yeah. or a side. Um, then you've got Aliasa and then you've got Ale, like with Alil, the other one. Yeah. You know, so sort of the other. Um, and then Aliasa, um, there's a word that comes into Old Irish, Aile, um, which is used to mean a prayer or a chant or incantation. But it does come from uh, the I think it's Greek, Greek it's it. that uh, the words Christ spoke on the cross. Oh God, why have you forsaken yeah, me? Oh God, Eli, Eli. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So oh that God. comes. Yeah, yeah. So that comes into Old Irish as Eli. You've done it again. You know. <laughs> I mean, this is this is really interesting because it's very compact language. And if we run through that, mm. so you've got Veniusa or Veniusa, mm. which is clearly Venus, yeah, but is also woman, yeah. Uh, really what we've got here is the restored Eve. Yeah, yeah. Then you've got the next two who are kind of ciphers. You've mm. got one of two yes. and the other. Yeah. That seems are, clear. But they're also mythological descriptions for women, you know, as yeah. we've talked about before in the other world women. But it's the last one that gets me mm -hmm. because you've not only got this Eleusa, a chant, the mm. prayer, oh God, you're also connecting, I think, to the Eleusinian mysteries mm. because you, you, we, we've clearly got this Greek link. Yeah. I, I mean, this is all speculative, but mm. nevertheless, I think we've known enough about our author now yeah. to know he's drawing in uh, a lot of uh, very scholarly stuff from oh, yeah. all over the place. Absolutely. And of course, the Eleusinian mysteries are um, the, the, the mysteries of Demeter and, and the Persephone mm. that went on from Hellenistic times right through to Roman times mm. and became a bit of a cult. Yeah. And uh, basically, they were secret mysteries which were all about rebirth, regeneration, Mm. The, 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 dark, the, the secret that's supposed to be the most inner secret was uh, an ear of wheat reaped in silence mm. and it was all about the fact that it was possible to have personal rebirth yeah, yeah. that you could become as a god and therefore have um, be resurrected in the yeah. other life yeah. and it just strikes me that there's we're coming across so much compacted symbolism yeah. in everything we do that this may well not be too far-fetched. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I find it really interesting. You were also saying, though, that the Ellisonian mysteries are, they're very much sort of female mysteries or around female characters. Yes, they're definitely <coughs> centred on Demeter and yeah. Persephone. Yeah. And uh, yes, they're often, certainly in Roman terms, known as women's mysteries. Yeah. They were very popular with women. Mm, mm. Uh, though, the, of course, you had priests and priestesses, yeah. so it's not just a women's secret yeah, women's yeah. mystery. But it was something that women were extremely attracted to yeah. in the same way that Mithraism was nearly all men. Yes. Well, it was all men. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're often regarded as women's mysteries. Mm, though, you know, because it, but it's based around the possibility Possibility of personal uh, survival yeah. after death. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite interesting here yeah. when we look at what we're, what we're getting to next. Absolutely, yeah. Well, beside this woman, Weniusa, as we said, she has this young companion, and it's this young man who's standing there and he's munching on an apple. But every time he eats a bit of the apple, it's immediately restored. And this actually gives Tyg a clue as to his identity, and Tyg asks him, Well, are you Kunla? And he says, mm -hmm. yes, I am. <laughs> this is what's happened to Conrad. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We'd better kind of cover what happens in the story called Echtra Conla, um, which is another sort of, it's an almost Imrov story. Um, but maybe just give a quick I'll summary. I'll do it as quick as I can. Yeah. Because, but we can put the text on the... Yes, we can, yeah. You know, or the translation yeah. on, on the website. Well, basically, Conla and his father, who's, of course, Con, mm -hmm. are standing in Ushnok when suddenly this unknown woman appeared and she speaks to Conla, mm -hmm. inviting him to Magmel. Yes. Uh, now, no one else can see him and his father's going, who are you talking to? Yeah. 
He's going, well, her. Yeah. Oh, there's no one there. And in fact, uh, she says to him, and I want to read this bit, mm. I come from the lands where there is neither death nor want nor sin. We keep feast without need for service. Peace reigns among us. A great fairy mound it is in which we live. We are called the folk of the fairy mound, the Aishi. Yeah. Now, his father gets a bit annoyed at this, mm. not, not unsurprisingly. And so he gets his druid to cast a spell so that the woman can't be heard by anybody. Yeah. But just before she leaves, uh, she throws Conla an apple. Yeah. And uh, he catches it. Now, after this, he can't eat any other food except for this apple. He mm. has to live on this apple for a month, yeah. which must be upsetting everybody yes. as well. <laughs> and one day, when he's by the sea, he sees the woman again. Mm. And this time, uh, he follows her into a crystal boat and is never yes. seen again by his yeah. father. And the story does not tell what happened to him. No, exactly. Part of the way the story is framed is to explain why Art, who's Conla's brother, was mm. known as sort of Art the Lonely. You know, because he'd he, lost his brother. Exactly. So he ends up being the only son then. And this art, it turns out to be the father, father of Cormac. Who will be next time. Exactly. Exactly. So um, as well as being almost like, I feel like the story is almost if Bran had never returned from the Island of Women to, to pass on his story, this is what his story would have ended mm. up as. That he, you know, was called by a fairy woman and then he went off and was never seen again. Well, Colna never is. Exactly, yeah. until Tyg meets him. But there is this very close uh, family relationship because it all goes back to Concade Cathach. It's all to do with this lineage that gives us Cormac. And we've already found that Tyg is also part of that immediate family. So this is all genealogically uh, connected. Exactly, exactly. But it's it's that sort of mythological genealogy that Tyg yeah. is now discovering the yeah, rest of the his, story. His mythological ancestors. Exactly, yeah. So that fairy mound of the Oishi um, from the story of Kunla, in this story of Taig, it's kind of morphed into the beautiful silver fortress. Much more elegant. It, it is, yeah, yeah. Elegant. But I think what interests me is when uh, when Ayusa, uh is talking and telling Taig about uh, her and Kunla, yeah. she says something really interesting, significant. Mm. She says that they live in this place without sin. Mm. And uh, but she really genuinely means that they live chaste. Yes, yeah. All she she says that all they ever do is look at each other, and nothing else. <laughs> and Tig, uh, the, the text says that he finds this beautiful but very funny. Yes. <laughs> now the the term that um, O'Grady uses is comical, but the word is at, which can mean kind of unexpected but still amusing still kind of pleasantly unexpected you know uh, so wow, i never thought never expected that yeah exactly <laughs> yeah the section i read from the actor conla yeah uh, carefully says that uh, they live in uh, free from original sin yeah. in magmel well this doesn't mean no sex no absolutely and in fact that chasteness would be very much unexpected as we've found so many times in this other world they can enjoy sex and pleasure, but what the sin they're free from is original sin. So it just kind of makes me go, well, has one of you so kind of misunderstood this or forgotten it or... <laughs> Tough luck on Carla. It really is. <laughs> She's going, oh, well, I'm understanding it this way. Exactly. That's just what you wanted, yeah, wasn't it, Carla? Yeah, exactly. And he takes another munch on his apple. <laughs> 
but I love the idea that Tyke finds it uh, the idea amusing. Yeah. And I, I, I would maintain that this suggests that our author finds it amusing. Exactly, yeah. That, well, the Christian sort of ethos has kind of forgotten what it originally was. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, hmm, is that the interpretation you're putting on it? We um, know otherwise. And as we can see when we look at this fortress, that's yeah, relevant. Exactly. Well, this great silver fortress, it turns out, uh, is set aside for all of the future kings and chieftains of Ireland, which means that at present it is empty. But what's more, she says only Christians are allowed into this one, and so she then asked Tig, well, you know, are you a Christian? Well, he says, you know, sort of, I want to look around this place. Yeah. And he says, oh, yeah. And he, he immediately starts going, I confess, I adore, I supplicate. He's just actually um, spouting catechism. Yeah, and when you read the words that he says, he says, Adwin, August Adrim, August Olim A. That sounds to me like, you know, the, the automatic <clears throat> response that you give when you're asked about your faith. It's also probably something that's part of a chant. I would say so, yeah. It yeah. certainly comes across that way. And of course he gets shown around. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting. She's saying that the future of Ireland is Christian. Exactly. And that quite, seems to be quite acceptable to yeah. Tig as well. Yeah. There's certainly not a problem there. He just wants to see this. Project. Yeah, he definitely does. <laughs> and I'm not surprised because the description of it is absolutely amazing. Mm. And I, I just have to read the bit from the text. Yep. There was a silver floor with four choice doors of bright gold, gems of crystal and carbuncles in patterns set into this wall of Findriver. In such wise, flashing of those precious stones shone day and night. Just absolutely describes mosaics. Yes. It describes yeah. metallic mosaics mm, and gold. Mm, absolutely. Well, after this guided tour, the woman also gives Tyke an actual plan. Yeah, like seems, a map. Yeah, it seems to be almost like the architectural drawings for the house. Um, she says she's stationed there and waiting for all of the future Christian kings and uh, provincial chieftains of Ireland to come. Um, she also shows him this great apple tree and says that's going to provide all the food that all of its inhabitants will ever need. Mm. So, you know, once again, they're no getting... kitchens. <laughs> no. <laughs> and no cooks either. Um, but there's also a great virtue that uh, we're told about this land and this house, which is that after leaving, neither Tig nor any of his crew will ever feel sadness or melancholy on leaving it. There's a whole lot of ironies about oh, yeah. this house. The way that there are all sorts of elements that mm. uh, I keep feeling are slightly satirical. Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, there's one we talked about, the irony of um, Wenius's ideas of chastity. Yes, yeah. That you know in another world setting exactly but you know this is the quality this is what's going to happen in this silver fortress exactly. this is the way this one's going to be run yeah yeah, yeah. and then secondary you've got this um this defense of christianity yeah which again seems kind of a little bit disingenuous almost you know that he's given this stock response to say that he's christian and i'm sure an awful lot of people who've been brought up within the church now know what those responses are like. Someone asks you a set question, you give the set answer, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. We may be reading, uh, giving too modern a reading into We this. might be, but I do feel there is that thing of, you know, all you have to do is say the right words, and then you get into the, the yeah. and then you get into heaven. I feel it's connected with this, again, this uh, predestination mm. that oh, we yeah. were talking about in Brendan. Exactly. That to a, somebody from a bardic school that mm. is not part of the priestly caste may have found some of these ideas of, 
yeah. predestination. Yeah. Slightly, well, say the right words, you get in. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe what he's trying to convey here, I don't know, this is very speculative. Of course. What isn't speculative, I think, is the way he's talking about the apples. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because there is a huge irony yeah. there that they're saying that the only food they're ever going to live on mm. is the apples. Mm. Now, this, if you like, is not only restoring Eve, it's mm. restoring the tree of life. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe irony is the wrong word. Mm. Maybe it's a sort of... Um, an outsider's view going exactly. wouldn't it be nice if yeah yeah you know if this is a perfect world so let's restore eve yeah if this is a perfect world yeah. let's um if you know the right words get in if mm. this is a perfect world tree you can life. eat the chapels of the tree of life yeah. again yeah um but he still finds the chastity amusing oh yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other thing i want so irony yeah I, mm. irony i'm not sure is the right word mm. but it's trying to get at these observations exactly about poet. yeah yeah um, the other thing is, I love the description of the fortress. Yes. As I was reading it, what comes to mind is a Byzantine palace. Yeah. Or maybe a Roman basilica. Yeah. Think of the Pantheon. Exactly. Or Hagia Sophia. Mm. Or remember when we were in St. Mark's. Yes. I know this is medieval. This is exactly. But it's still based on the, yeah. the older places. Yeah, that layout and all of that sort of opulence and colour and oh, and the gold the yeah. golden glass mosaics yeah. that yeah. both shine and are seem mosaic seem brilliant yeah um anyone who's ever been to one of these byzantine palaces yes or, yeah. or um, basilicas you know exactly what i mean with exactly it's sort of 11th 12th century yeah. mosaic um walls of the saints and mm, mm. it just glitters with yeah, gold yeah, yeah. and I can't help feeling that that's what he's got in mind exactly but I mean it's also you know this is a description of the fortress for the future kings so it's also saying you know the future is definitely this Roman Christianity yeah, I do you like know. this text <laughs> it is brilliant so the next person they meet and she just sort of turns up yeah. doesn't it they go in through a hall and there she is yeah and it's a uh, cleaner fairhead of the dodonga yes and this is the cleaner of the wave as in the thumb cleaner that's uh, who they're meeting here now there are two dinhenicus poems on thumb cleaner uh cleaner's wave um and just in brief it's the story of uh, a woman of the other world um from magmel from magmel you know, which there's been plenty of reference to in our story, but she's kidnapped by uh, some mortal Irishman, Kievon. Yep. She dies on her way back towards land, toward the mortal she's drowned. realm, drowned. And there is this sort of image that it's an avenging wave that has sort of taken her away. But in many ways, uh, she herself stands for the wave. Her name Cleana, um, I would analyse it as Cleothna, which is like a pillar. It can either be a pillar of sound, possibly even a pillar of water, which, you know, that's just... It's pretty good going through a wave. It is, it? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, on top of that, so to speak... Uh, Literally. Has, yeah, she has this uh, soubriquet of Ken Thind, which is a, a white head. And we've come across that before Always as a description waves. for a wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I think that she herself is this avenging wave. Yeah. Um, so this is who he's now... Uh, meeting encountered yeah cleaner also seems to be there to reinforce the importance of this apple food of yes land. but of course there's also some more birds there always are yeah always more birds at this point three birds kind of fly in through a window and the first one is blue with a crimson, crimson head, head. Yeah, yeah. the second one is crimson with a green head and the third is speckled breck with a gold head now of course they all sing sweetly and they feast on the apples yeah the usual exactly well cleaner tells 
tag that these are the birds that will guide him home. Yeah. But oh, what's going on with the Technicolor birds again? I know, I know. Well, once again, we have Kirkra, um, which we discussed earlier, um, which um, O'Grady seems to variously translate as red or crimson, depending on how he's feeling. It's meant to be fuchsia. It is. It's that kind of foxglove colour, I would yeah. say. You know, and very much, once again, associated with nobility. Yeah, so, so these noble birds. Exactly. Say, yeah. yeah. Well, as well as all this, Cleodna gives Tyke this incredible green cup. And she says it was found in the heart of a whale, which I think is just amazing. And it has all kinds of interesting properties. For one thing, it can turn water into wine. Right. <laughs> um, but she also tells him that he should keep this cup with him at all times, otherwise he'll die. Yeah, the cup is fascinating. It is. Um, I mean, Cormac's whole life is littered with special cups. Yeah. We'll see that next time. We will, yeah. Um, that has different properties. Mm. But all these cups acquired from the other world. Mm. Now, you might ask, you know, do they influence the Grail stories or is yeah. it the other way round? Yeah. Um, that's well, just a side... We did find before, particularly in talking about Moitura, that in Ireland the grail is very much cow-shaped. Um, <laughs> and actually, yeah. we're going to find something very similar with Cormac exactly, and yeah. his birth, but we'll leave that till yeah, next, that's time. next time. Otherwise, throwing in too much into the mix. Yes. <laughs> We've already thrown in Connor, yeah, yeah. which we were planning to do next time. But I know. It had to come in yeah, here. Yeah, it's so connected. What really interests me about this cup and the idea of you have to... It mentions that it comes from a whale's heart, mm. but that you have to keep this cup with you all you will die yeah there's so many folktales it's almost a folktale type mm. what we call it it's uh, the dragon's heart or the heart in the phylactery mm. that the, the cup is a phylactery mm. now there's an ancient egyptian story of the two brothers where one knows the other is at danger oh, if yeah. the beer in the cup goes cloudy yes there are many folktales is where that the, someone... the one with the heart hidden in the tree is that that uh, one yes it is but yeah. there's also of course that connects with the welsh story of uh, Lou and yeah. the Eagle and oh, that's, that, that, yeah. that, it's too much <laughs> but there's a lot of stories where a hero has to go and find a dragon's heart but mm. the heart is not you can't kill the dragon because the dragon's heart is kept elsewhere yes yeah you know sometimes hidden yeah. in, in an enigma wrapped up in a <laughs> riddle, in a riddle yes. wrapped up. you know it's layered and layered yeah. like one of those medieval Christmas roasts with <laughs> different birds yes <laughs> Which nowadays they have been bowdlerized into Aldi. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. You know, but nevertheless, you've got yeah. this layered quality. Absolutely. And we've got it here again, the mm. idea that he is safe. He says it's from a whale's heart, but in a way I think it's his it, own heart yeah. that is now the immortal side of him. Mm. The, the soul, if you like, mm. is now kept in this cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find this just fascinating. It is, it is. And of course, just as a reminder, when we were looking at St. Brendan last time, he also brings a cup back from his other world journey. Um, and he spent a lot of time frolicking with whales as well. Right. You know? Presumably the water into wine bit is derivative. It sounds like it, all right. It's almost a throwaway comment. Of course this cup can turn water into wine. That's what the least of it. <laughs> now, Cleona does tell Tyke that he will get home safely, that this current voyage will be a success. Um, although she also says he's going to die not long after he gets back. She says he will be wounded by a stag in a glen near the Boyne mm -hmm. River, but then his enemies will finish him. him off. Yeah, But she says if he keeps this cup with him, then once he dies in this world, in, his, the, mortal world. in the mortal world, his soul will come back to this land where he can live alongside Cleodna forever and ever till the end of time. In or till Judgment Day. Exactly, whichever <laughs> comes first. <Yeah. laughs> um, 
Also, she says she will bury his mortal remains and that there will be this great cairn raised for him. So, you know, he'll be remembered and revered in Ireland. In the mortal world. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's a very interesting fusion. Mm. So to sort of try trying to get this clear, mm. he is to live with her in spirit mm. until the judgment day. Mm. He's dead in the mortal world and alive in the other world, mm. which can in fact be reached in theory by sea. Exactly. Uh, this is sort of getting around a difficulty. You know, for Christians, yeah. I think, as well as non-Christians. In the non-Christian stories, you can't return from the Isle of Promise, Tinanog, or Death the in land general. Of the yeah. yeah, You can't return from the Land of the Dead, yeah. as you could in the earlier Irish stories. Exactly. So it's sort of got... It's sorted out mm. all these the things that don't match. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And has said that, you know, there's still a way to get a form of life after death. It's a good compromise mm. between the Christian and the non-Christian, yeah. which still honours and upholds the Irish other world. Exactly, yeah. And I think our author's trying to do this all the way through. Very much so, yeah. Now, I also think it's interesting that in Cleaner's story, which we sort of briefly recounted uh, from the Metrical Dynamicus, uh, she almost has sort of a reverse journey to Ty. Yeah, yeah. You know, Ty has come from the mortal world where his wife has been kidnapped and he's sort of ended up in this other world. With Cleena, she was kidnapped herself from the other world to be brought to the mortal world. So it's almost like as characters, they have these mirror image stories yeah. and yeah. that connects them, you know, yeah, connected the through world. the motifs. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think I like that. Yeah. That's good. Then Cleena seems to go back with them to where they've left the rest of his men mm -hmm. who haven't had all these adventures. No, of course not. And... Uh, she tells them that they've been there not for a day, which is what everyone thinks, mm. but a year. Yes. And just says, and have you noticed that you've been hungry or tired? And they'll go, no. <laughs> well, this is absolutely typical otherworld time dilation. We have met this so many times before. Yeah. And the, I think the other thing at this point we, we, we need to say again is that uh, it's very clearly that this Isle of Promise is the Isle of Women. Yeah. This is a typical Isle of Women, mm. as well as an Isle of Promise, as yeah. well as Magmel and yeah, these yeah. things. Um, all important information is actually offered by women. Yes. Every single bit of it. Yeah, and not only that, but, you know, the, the sort of, aside from Cleana, the other recognisable female figure is Kesser. Um, now, she wasn't the first person to come to Ireland in the Levergavola tradition. That was Partholone. But she is the first woman. Mm. And I think that that's what gives her that role and that significance. So it is very clearly a place where women are leading the way. All of Tighe, he gathers his crew together and they set sail with a little bit of regret, but the birds do guide them, these technicolour birds, guide them all the way to Fresh and to Frisia for the next part of their adventure. But we're not saying that here. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to tell the whole story. That, that would be a completely different bit. No, yeah. this is this is meant to be a series on Imrov, Imrov yeah. not Ektor. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Tyg finds his missing brothers, although he doesn't recognise them immediately. And with their help, luck, bravery, and a really good battle, yes. they overcome all their enemies, he recovers his wife, Libor, and then they go home. Yes. Yeah, and presumably live happily ever after. Well, for a while. Yes, <laughs> Un until they don't. Um, we will put up a link, certainly, to the Silver Gadelica on our website, and we'll see if we can just take this piece of, uh, this particular story from out of its midst and post that up on the it's website. It's difficult, but we'll do our best. Exactly, but it's worth reading, and it's worth reading all the way through Oh, and do end. read the last part of the story! Exactly, It's yeah. really good! It is. To sum up, is this then an Imrov or is it an Ektra? Well, it certainly has a lot of the 
Imrov characteristics that we have come to recognise over this series. Even Jared Murphy describes it as an Imrov-like story. Yeah, yeah, I think we'd have to sum it up as, well, look, it's an extra with an Imrov interlude inserted. I might ask, well, what is our Olive? Mm. What's, what is he saying overall? Yeah, well, there is a way in which, uh, through this story, he's sort of saying our afterlife is better than yours. What, you mean like you don't have to be dead to get here, but it helps? Yes, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly is a, a, a very inclusive Isn't and expansive other world. I mean, even the sort of the Christian elect can have their personal corner within this great and expansive realm. I suppose you could call it a sort of cauldron of abundance mm. afterlife or mm. other world. Yeah. Um, everyone gets what they most desire. Exactly, yeah. Well, if we look at the description of uh, the Inish Dergloche in the context of those other uh, afterlife or other world lands that one used talked about. So you've got the Inish Thoilev, which is this beetle land. Yeah, the sort of Hades or Shale. Yes, the, yeah. The land of dust. Exactly, yeah. And then you've got the Escandra, which is the uh, land of curses. Which would be either Hell or Tartarus, yeah. something like that. Yeah, and then you've got the sort of Lost Eden, Adam's Paradise. Lost long before Milton. Absolutely, yeah. And then you've got this other world, which is you know, has enough to include the Christian heaven as part of it, um, even if it is on a little island in a lake with a fence around it. Well, you've it. got the sort of the silver fortress, mm. it? like it's, it's, a, it's a heaven for... Yeah. I, this is why I can't help feeling it. That's a heaven for the reasonable people. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't get round that, yeah. that he is sort of having a sly dig yeah, yeah. at the extreme monasticism. Exactly, He's yeah. definitely not a monk. No, absolutely it's not. It's very, very clear that yeah. he, he's, he's been quite satirical about monks. I can't yeah. get around that. Yes, yes. But his Christian heaven is, in some ways, is the this wonderful silver fortress. Exactly. That which, that's for the future. Yeah. fantastic futuristic architecture. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, that that's what the future's got. Yes, yeah. Not bad. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I think the other thing is, it's what I like about it, it's wide enough to include the non-Christian part yeah. and the Roman Christian future. Yeah. It's all accepted and um, welcomed. Exactly, yeah. And there, there's no kind of Exclusion or belittling of any, you know. No, it's all equally loved yeah. and yeah. honoured. Exactly. I still, though, wonder whether there there is a certain amount of satire. It is a little bit satirical. Yeah, there is the odd bit of tongue in cheek, you know. But as you said, our, very our, gentle. Yeah. Well, I'd like to kind of reflect somewhat on this author's sort of personal synthetic project. You know, we were talking about it's the story's connection to the Levergavola tradition, as uh, we've come to call it, which is a project of fitting the Irish mythology into a Christian uh, or a biblical genealogy and ideology and history. But this author is coming at it from the opposite direction. He's looking to include the Christian mythology into the native. It's a process of assimilation. Exactly, yeah. And I think that he's quite successful at it. Yeah, and it's 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 like a, a reverse of the Lagavulin. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's almost that mirror image. I, you can almost see the author sitting down to go. Well, you know, all those other scholars are busily trying to, you know, fit our tradition into the Christian. I wonder what would happen if you looked at it the other yeah. way around. And there is another way of telling the story. Exactly. We could synchronize uh, the biblical with our own native. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's saying, look, hang on, yeah. we've already got some incredible stories. Exactly. Yeah. 
No, I think this is very, very interesting, especially mm. when, from what I understand, the text is around the same date as the Lagavulin. Oh, yeah, well, it's all within this Middle Irish period, mm. which, as well as being a, a period of linguistic change, was also, I feel, a period of kind of ideological change or philosophical mm. change. And this is going, there is another way of telling the story exactly, yeah. without dishonouring Christians. Yeah, yeah, it can we still can do be it part and of keep it. our yeah. native tradition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I personally would go so far as to say I think this is a kind of forgotten masterpiece yeah yeah well it certainly has great craft in it yeah it's got such an excellent stru story structure mm. i mean the poetry which yeah. we can only touch on exactly which does have this very good metrics including that little bit of onovan where our author is saying look yeah. i'm an olive i can do this form of and poetry. unfortunately look, this is not given in the translations no, that we've got no and then you've got the dialogue yeah. you've got a really good action story oh, you've yeah. got humor i kind of think it's got everything it has a bit yeah now i feel that this structure it does suggest to me that it's kind of a performative text i mean we we've shown i think and i hope quite clearly that the author was very literary mm -hmm. um, and that he crafted it all but i think that when you bring in these elements such as you know the dialogue the kind of script element you've got the prose yeah. which is sort of talking directly to the audience exactly yeah and then every now and then they burst into song which is the poetry <laughs> exactly which may have even been performed as, as it's song. we've no possible. idea yeah there's all kinds of you know uh, possible interpretations can't for tell that. that one but i don't think it's beyond the bounds to see this as it could almost be a musical play. Oh, please, please. I don't like musicals. No, nor do I. It is not the sound of music. Uh, I'd put All more... the up, right? Exactly, exactly. More something which has, you know, both good music and good words, yeah, I yeah. would say. But it's an interesting way of looking at it, that mm. it is, is um, intended as a performative piece. Yeah, I'd say, you know, we cannot forget that as a possibility. Yeah, it's no more than a possibility. Yeah, yeah. We just don't know no. how they were used. But what one thing I can say is that we've seriously enjoyed this yes. episode. This was an unexpected treat for us. Yeah, when yeah. we first started looking at this piece, we had no idea what it would uh, open up. No. And it only works when you go back to the original text. Yeah, well, it's the kind of thing, it, the, the process has been really interesting because obviously Chris is reading it in translation and says, I think there might be something about, you know, different other worlds here. But it's only when we look at the Irish text yeah, and I did that say it please go and look at the poetry exactly. because I have a feeling that this one could uh, you know just the way it's structured yes yeah. it's, it's structured so well yeah is the poetry there yeah. extant and is it worth looking at exactly. and you came back going yeah yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that I asked about the, the, some of the names, which exactly. I wondered whether were completely made up. Well, they sounded very kind of fakey and a bit sort of just thrown in there. But in fact, no, I do think that our author seriously knew what he was about. Yeah, it's been a big contrast from the last one on Brendan, yes. which, to be honest, that was... we struggled a little <laughs> yeah, bit Yeah, that was the, the image of rowing through treacle, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going, where's the story? Give us some story. So I'm sorry, it turned out long. <laughs> purely because we were rowing so slowly yeah exactly <laughs> but go and read this one this is even treat. in O'Grady's translation exactly. it's still a great story is, and please yeah. go on to the end oh, and find out how Ty yeah. rescued his brothers yes and his wife let's and not his forget wife. her yeah I know but I mean <laughs> it's, uh, his brothers join in the battle exactly yeah 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 and next time well we've got a great one next oh, time yeah. the shocking revelations <laughs> concerning King Cormac <laughs> Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas. 
Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>